All right, you ready for this? <clears throat> Last week, we started a, an introduction, actually, into this book, this letter, this epistle, if you will, to the Ephesians. And we looked at the church in Ephesus. Last week, just as a quick review, we saw that Paul had been on three missionary journeys that are well known. Actually, he was on a fourth missionary journey. It's just not unpacked for us in the book of Acts. You've got to kind of put some things together. But clearly, after he had his first imprisonment in Rome, he went probably, some speculate that he might have gone as far as, as Spain and then made his way back through, gone back to Macedonia, and maybe even revisited some of these places like Ephesus uh, on a fourth missionary journey. But we don't know for sure. We can kind of try to put the pieces together and, but you don't get that unpacked for us in the book of Acts. So if you'll remember, if you're new to your Bible, you've got the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then you have the book of Acts, and that's how the church is exploding, and that's why we get the letter to the Ephesians. We get the letter to the church at Colossae, the Philippians, and all these various letters that you get in your New Testament are a function of the church exploding into existence. And let me tell you something, this was always the plan of God. I'm, in fact, I'm going to take you, I alluded to this last week, but it's important that you see this is vital. This is vital, that God's plan was always to reach to the ends of the earth. Well before Jesus came and gave us the Great Commission that said, I want you to start here in Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria, and then the remotest parts of the earth, that it was always the plan. But what was it about Ephesus as we begin to unpack this? What was it about the church at Ephesus? First of all, you need to know it's not too different maybe in some ways than what we have here. People were in and out. People came in from all over the, all, all over the Mediterranean because as we saw last week, the great goddess that they worshipped, uh, Diana, and they came and they had figurines and there was big business and commerce around it. Ours isn't so much that anymore. It's tennis and golf and and uh, laying out by the pool, I guess. That's our goddess, uh, Diana, these days. But everybody comes from around all over the place. And in fact, the very name etymologically of, the, of Ephesus means desirable. You meet people all the time. You say, why are you going to the desert? Well, you don't say because it's desirable. You say the weather is better than anywhere in the world for about eight months. And that's why you see our, number, our numbers will quadruple once we get to November here at Church at the Red Door. Why? Because people, it's desirable starting about November. And then it becomes a little less desirable as you move into June. But still, Ephesus was a desirable place. And they came. And it was, uh, it was a cosmopolitan place. As I alluded to last week, it was, a, it was a pretty interesting place. Now, from a biblical standpoint, Ephesus was always a fun, also a fantastic place. Because some speculate, and in fact, you can go there if you've ever been. I've actually never been to Ephesus. I plan on taking a group there one of these days. But you can go there, and uh, you can actually go to the church of the Apostle John. Some speculate that John lived out his days in Ephesus, the disciple John. And because of, I believe it was John chapter 17, remember Jesus on the cross said, would you make sure and take care of this woman who was his mother? And so many believe that Mary, the mother of Jesus, maybe spent her last days in Ephesus as well. And there are churches there to this day that commemorate that fact. Now, not all scholars agree, but I think there's a, a pretty weighty leaning towards that being the case. Ephesus was definitely a unique place. Ephesus was also one of what they call the prison epistles, along with uh, Colossians and Philippians and Philemon, Paul wrote his letter to the Ephesians while he was in prison. Let me tell you something. He didn't do it out on a Caribbean thing, on a cruise and with a corona in one hand. He didn't do that. No, he was in prison. So when he's writing these things, he's like, I, I, don't, know, I don't know if I'm going to make it through this. I have to give this, I have to get this letter to the Ephesians. Some of the early manuscripts about the Ephesians don't even say to the church at Ephesus. Now, we don't know whether that's the case or not. It definitely, though, was meant to be a general letter that would be read all over Asia Minor, and particularly as the church began to grow all over the Mediterranean. And maybe Paul never really realized it when he penned it. I don't know. I can't speak for him that one day, truly, at the ends of the earth, we would be going into this kind of detail about something that he wrote while he was in prison. 
It's an amazing letter when we think about it. Now, before we jump off into it, and we are, we're going to get one verse into it today. That's my plan. (laughs) Say, oh man, that guy in his uh, series, that's why I don't call him series anymore because I'd lose you if I told you it was a series. This is all just, you know, when you start to unpack the Bible, what you're really doing, it doesn't matter where you go. I don't care where you go in the Bible. One of the things I hope you learn, anywhere you go in the Bible, you're going to come upon the name of Jesus. And it may not be Jesus, Jesus like, hey, because we don't really get that picture until the New Testament. But the Messiah, the branch, the lamb, all these pictures, Jesus emerges from anywhere we go. So we're always talking about Jesus. Okay, are you with me? So it doesn't matter whether we go back into the Old Testament or if we're in the New Testament or where we are. Jesus is at the very center of the message of the biblical narrative. And that's driven more Jewish people to Jesus because they see Jesus emerge in the Septuagint, which again was codified some 200 years before the time of Jesus. That's important for you to know as well. Now, Ephesus was an incredibly strategic place for the unpacking of the gospel to the, the pagans, the, the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And, and as we've said before, as we saw in Acts chapter 10, that was crazy talk that they never saw that coming. And in fact, we're going to get into that when we get into the latter part of Ephesians 2 and Ephesians chapter 3. Paul says this is one of the greatest mysteries of all time. He said the fact that Gentiles are included in this message, this is our God. This is our, he he chose us. This is about us. No, it's always been about the nations. He used Israel as a mediator of a covenant, old and new. That's important for you to know as well. So I want you to go back, if you have your Bibles, to Isaiah chapter 42, and I want to unpack this just a little bit. And you say, I thought this was going to be about the Ephesians. If you get this background information and you understand it and you begin to have it in your core, the soul of who you are, then when we read the book of Ephesians, things will begin to explode in your mind that maybe wouldn't have had you not had a deeper understanding of what had been promised for hundreds of years. Isaiah chapter 42, I want us to start here in verse 1. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold. Who's speaking here? It's what we always have to ask. What's the context? Who's speaking? This is God speaking. And he said, I have a servant, and I uphold him. My chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Jewish people. That's not what it says. He will bring forth justice to the nations, to everybody, all the way around the globe and back. He will not cry out or raise his voice. Did Jesus respond in that way? I mean, as you see him before his accusers, he was quiet before his accusers. He perfectly fulfilled this. Nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed, he's not going to break it. And a dimly burning wick, well, he's not going to extinguish it. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth. Now, Now, imagine for a second... If you were the Jew, uh, had a Jewish mind here and you were thinking about this, this one who is going to come in and establish justice, how would you think he would establish it? Through the sword, man. I mean, he's going to come in and he's going to waylay our enemies. Now, it didn't matter when you were reading this because this, the Babylonians would come in well after the time Isaiah actually wrote this. They would, you'd have all kinds of world powers rising way before Rome. You'd have, uh, the, Alexander the Great was, uh, I mean, they were subject to so many different people during this time. We're waiting for somebody to come in that's stronger than Augustus who really launched Rome or Alexander the Great, you know, the great, this great Greek philosophical, just a nation that pushed forth everything. We still get our words, gymnasium and all this from, from this Greek culture, all these. But we need somebody, but we're servants to them. We want somebody to come in and wipe them out like they've wiped us out. But how does that go with not breaking a, a reed or extinguishing I mean, that's not power. That seems to be weakness mixed with justice. 
Now, I want you to see this. If you catch nothing else this morning, what you're going to see is justice. Yeah, he's going to bring forth justice. God, and we did a whole little thing on that, not serious, but we did a whole little thing on the wrath of God, and justice was brought forth. God killed his own son. Yeah, justice is coming. God's going to take the brunt of the justice. It's an amazing thing that we're looking at here. He won't be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice on the earth and the coastlands. Coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I'm going to hold you by the hand. I'm going to watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the what? nations to open blind eyes bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison now i'm just going to ask you can you put yourself in there has that happened in your own experience have your eyes been opened to a whole new realm can you believe some of you the way you used to live and the, th- the way you used to think about reality and the way you used to react when somebody attacked you or the way you used to think and the fear you used to have. Did you feel a prisoner thinking, well, this is all there is, you know, existentialism. We've talked about it. You know, I just got to make sense out of this and try to find some meaning because I know there's really no meaning at all. But now I can see why. Because Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And when Jesus is shining, everything else is visible. Now, did that happen in your experience? Has that happened in your experience? Yeah, Yeah, I think so. Let me just tell you, it will continue. And that's the whole purpose of this church. There is no other purpose for this church. It's to be a light in this valley, anywhere God sends us. Now, what's fascinating, he says, I'm the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. I'm not going to give my praise to graven images. Now, this is way before the church at Ephesus was launched. But see, when the light came into Ephesus, it seemed so small, so unspectacular. We saw Priscilla and Aquila, and they had come there. We don't know exactly how that first, on his second missionary journey, we don't know exactly how that was unpacked, but something had happened and started a fire. And now as you go back, you can go back there, you can look at the ruins But where's the great goddess Diana? Where's the great Ephesus? Where's the great metropolitan city? Where is it? But let me tell you something. Out of that place shone the light. And that light is reverberating through all, or sound reverberates. That light is emanating out through all the earth. And his name is Jesus. Jesus has lasted. Diana has not lasted. Now, when you look at that and you say, wow, I'm not going to give my praise to graven images. This is going to be about a personal relationship with me. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and now I declare new things, but before they spring forth, I will proclaim them to you. In other words, this hasn't happened, but it's going to happen, and it did happen about 700 years after the time Isaiah wrote this. And it came, this light came in the form of God himself, in the form of his son. And that light was going to be sent to the nations. Now, as we alluded to last week, and again, this is important to really get this down in our bones. Because look, as we saw last week, Jesus said, I only came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So how is Jesus a covenant to the nations if he only came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel? Well, there had to be a conduit. And who was it? Well, now I want to go forward to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Some of you have heard me teach on this, but I found this to be one of the most untaught things. I've never heard a sermon on this. I've never heard a teaching on this. It just boggles my mind because to me it's the epicenter of how the gospel launched. And it's a picture because Paul, on his first missionary journey, listen to what he says in Antioch. He says, uh, Acts chapter 13, verse 44. Acts chapter 13, verse 44. So again, he's on a missionary journey. I won't get into the whole context of this. He says, on the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. 
But when the Jewish people saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. Now, again, it's important to say this because anti-Semitism can sometimes rise out of this. They were, this was Jewish people among Jewish people. It wasn't all the Jewish people. It was a select group of Jewish people. That's important for you to understand. There were Jews in every part. When the gospel went forth, some accepted it and some rejected it. It says they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul, and they were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you repudiated and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the what? The Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us. Now, it's also important to get this in a larger context because. Some, in fact, in some, in in the Reformation, we'll talk a little bit about the Reformation, but in the Reformation, Luther, who was one of the founders kind of of the Reformation, you know, and Calvin and Zwingli and some of these guys, but Luther became extremely anti-Semitic. We cannot bury that historical fact. And some of the times they would come back this and say, see, God's done with the Jewish people. He is all about the Gentiles now, not recognizing that if you just go to the next city that they went to, Paul went directly into the synagogue. He's talking about the Jewish people in this particular place, on this particular, he went to many cities. He wasn't talking about the Jewish people as a nation. He's just talking about the Jewish people in this town. Look, we've, we've proclaimed the message to you. You've rejected it. Now we're turning to the Gentiles in this town. That's important to understand, too. People can take that out of context, and if you do, you think, well, God's done with the Jewish people. And as you know, if you're part of Church of the Red Door, you may be visiting here. We have a a lot of involvement with the Jewish believing community in Israel and around the United States as well. And they are growing quickly, and many, many Jewish people are coming to faith in Jesus because they're reading their own book, the Tanakh or the Old Testament. Now, I will say this as well. He says, I've placed you, for the Lord has commanded us. Now catch this. I have placed you. Who's he speaking about? He says, the Lord said he commanded us. Who? That's the believing Jewish community. I have commanded you and placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as have been appointed to eternal life, believed. Now, there's a couple things I want to unpack here. This is profound. I, don't miss this. He's quoting Isaiah 42 here. He said it was always the plan. We were supposed to be the light to the nations. He took what was clearly a messianic prophecy and said, now Jesus, and I'm putting some words here, but Jesus is now in us, and so now we're the light to the nations. And we could use that same thing for us today. We could say this about church at the red door Not, and all the church, all the church community here in the valley. I never want to be, you know, feel like, you know, church at the red door is the only life-giving church in this valley. Oh, no, there are many life-giving churches in this valley. But we have been commanded, I've placed you as a light for the Coachella Valley and wherever else this church will reach into. I've commanded you, you be the light now. The light's in you. You go tell them about this new covenant. You tell them how it goes. You tell them about life. You tell those who are in slavery and who are in prison, not literally, but even can be literally as well, but spiritually, you tell them, those who live in darkness, that a great light is shining, and his name is Jesus. Now, let me tell you something. That's how it started. That's how it started. If it wouldn't have been for that understanding, that Pauline understanding that they were now the light to the nations, not just Jesus. We saw what Isaiah had seen. Jesus was going to be a light to the nations. But then Jesus says, I'm only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In other words, he knew he was going to give up and breathe his last and say, it is finished, knowing that he had transplanted this gospel message into a few crazy, weird, whacked out guys named disciples that never knew what was going on. And you say, how can you say that? That's blasphemy. No, they, they say it about themselves. They never understood what was going on. Peter's trying to cut off people's ears and fight for Jesus, and they were doing it all the wrong way. They had complete misunderstanding. And yet if they had gone back to Isaiah 42, they said, no, here's how it works. Justice is going to come to the earth, but it's going to come through the sacrifice of Jesus himself, not through the sword. But they didn't understand that. But now they did. And now Paul, who was killing the very church, 
He was there to wipe the church out. And this gets us to our first issue. The second thing I want to unpack in this passage in Acts 13. Notice what he says in the last verse here. He says, and as many as has been appointed to eternal life believed. Now, some of you don't know what's coming here. <laughs> but this, this divides to this day. It divides denominations across the world this issue of predestination, who's appointed, who's not, how all that works. Next week, I'm going to give you a little historical background to how we got to where we are. But let me tell you something. I love, this is why I love Church of the Red Door. It's why I love a place like the Coachella Valley where somehow we can come together and there are so many different backgrounds here. If you've got a Methodist background or many of you Southern Baptist background or, or you have a... a, a Pentecostal background, chances are you think one way about predestination, and you're kind of over here in this camp. If you come from a Presbyterian background, a Lutheran background, or something, you're probably over here in this kind of camp. And some say, look, don't teach about that stuff because it's too hard to understand. It's going to, it's too complex, and people, and you're going to divide your own church. No, we're going to go right, and we're going to wade right out into the middle of it. We're going to get right into the middle of it. Why? Because of what we saw last week in Acts chapter 20. Remember what Paul says as he's about to leave to his, his group, his elders at Ephesus. He goes, I did not shrink back from declaring everything that would be profitable for you. And let me tell you something, I think this is profitable. Whether you know it or not, as we begin to unpack this issue of predestination, whether you're appointed or called or whether or not you made the decision to follow God. However you come down, we're not gonna, we will not divide on this issue. But we are going to jump into it. Because there's no way you can get into the book of Ephesians unless you just kind of gloss over and say, oh, no, those are predestined and da, da, And you just get to the next thing that's easy to unpack. We're not going to skirt this issue. And it starts right here. Those who what? Had been appointed to eternal life believed. Well, you should be asking the questions, well, what about those that weren't appointed? Then they couldn't believe, right? So you're appointed or not appointed. Does that mean that now you don't have free will? So now, but you, look, <laughs> you ready for this? It's going to be good. It's going to be good. Wake up your neighbor. Okay, so this is a, look, this is good stuff. This is great stuff. It's I called it last week blocking and tackling kind of stuff. But let me tell you something. If, if I didn't think it was important, if I didn't think that you made decisions daily, whether you were aware of it or not, about some of your understandings of what theologians call soteriology, the study of how you're saved, you make decisions every day based on your understanding of soteriology. And one of the things we're going to see in the book of Ephesians is that we get into Christology the study of Jesus. Who was he? How does this unpack? We get, we get a lesson in Christology. We get a lesson clearly in soteriology. How are you saved? Ephesians 2, you're saved by grace through faith and not of works lest anyone should boast. We look at, we're going to look at orthopraxy. Well, how do you actually work this thing out? How does this look? If I'm a Christian, what, is, what should it look like? What should my life look like? How should I behave? What, should, what things should I be engaged in? We'll get, into, uh, there's so, we'll get into ecclesiology. What's the church look like? The study of the church. What's the church supposed to be? What's a, as a functioning body, what's that look like? Whether you know it or not, this letter of Ephesians is a broad sweeping, very, very wide. Some think the singular letter in only six chapters that does more to consummate the inauguration of the church from beginning to end in terms of how you're saved, who's Jesus, how does this work, what should my life look, and then ultimately, and now I realize I'm a target. Therefore, we have to put on the full armor of God. And if you take just six chapters, see, I think that's what Paul is trying to do here. He doesn't know whether he's going to make it through. He's in prison. He's like, I... I got to get this letter to the church at Ephesus because there's going to be some weird things that are going to begin to happen. There's an inevitable slide if we don't stay on top of it, and that's what I want to talk to you about next. So real quickly, let me just say this. The order of Ephesians is going to be incredibly important. Can I just say that? The first three chapters of Ephesians 
are going to tell us about orthodoxy. How are we saved? Who is Jesus? Just about what we just talked about. And then the next three chapters are because now because these things are true, because Christ is who he is, because he did what he did, and because now who you are in Christ, because of that, then chapters 4, 5, and 6, now that you understand that, then we'll get this second part, and this is how you live. This is how you live the Christian life, chapters 4, 5, and 6. Now, this order, by the way, it, do you realize how vital this order is in your understanding? What if they'd done chapters 4, 5, and 6, and then 1, 2, and 3? You say, well, it's not a big deal. It's a huge deal. Can I just tell you this? Every other religion, every other religion on the planet gets this order wrong. Here's what you do to make God happy with you about your life. And then maybe he accepts you. No, no, no. You've got to understand, you were chosen. You were predestined. You were called. God chose you when you weren't choosing him. He came running after you when you weren't running after him. It's all God. It's all grace. It's, it's his creative force of who he is. You got to get that part first and then say, okay, now how do I live because that's true? But if you go, well, okay, what have I got to do? Then you're going to come in here a couple times and say, well, I, I, if they knew what was going on in my life, you don't know what I've been through. You don't know the trials I've been through. You have no idea. And all the pain that I've caused and all, and, and I have a record. Do you know I have a record? Maybe you have a record. I don't have a record, but maybe you have a record. It doesn't matter. The ground at the foot, the beginning part, is very level at the cross. You come in. We all come in in the same place as sinners, separated from a holy God. Some may have lived a pretty exemplary life. Some may have lived a pathetic life. But from God's perspective, we're all, all pathetic and far removed from who he is. And I have to say amen to that. So if you understand that, you're going to get the order. Okay, catch this. First three chapters, orthodoxy. Second three chapters, orthopraxy. Ortho, like the orthodontist. I know the orthodontist very well. <laughs> and he knows my bank account. She knows my bank account very well. Two daughters, and we're just praying for the third. Lord, straighten those teeth. Whatever you got to do, straighten those teeth. It means to go straight. So what is straight orthodoxy? What is straight thinking? Straight And then straight practice. How do I think straight and right, rightly about God? To have God in a right place in my mind about who I'm dealing with? And then how do I practice properly having understood proper orthodoxy? So you see also divine sovereignty, God's acting on this, then leads to human responsibility. So in the first three chapters, we're going to see God's divine sovereignty. But then the second three chapters, we're going to see, well, what is then our human responsibility? Because that's true. The first three are salvation, how it's worked into you. And then as Paul told the church at Philippi, now with fear and trembling, work that salvation out of you. So the first three are how it's worked in. The next three are how it's worked out. And, you know, Paul uses this orderliness in other places through his writings. For instance, the uh, Romans, for instance, the first 11 chapters, how it gets worked in. It's an unbelievable theological treatise. You know, the book of Romans about salvation and, and being led by the Spirit. And then it's, you know, no, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He's trying to establish this orthodoxy. But then starting in verse 12, now you become a living and holy sacrifice. In other words, orthopraxy, and then he gets into that. So you see, do you, are you with me? Do you understand how vital this order is? And you say, well, this is a lot of theological stuff. I just came here to just get, just get something today that kind of helped me through the day. This is extraordinarily important. Maybe you're on YouTube. Maybe you're here for the first time, and you say, you know, I could never live up to this life. Yeah, well, welcome to the crowd. That's what Church at the Red Door is, a bunch of people who could never live up to God's demands through the law. No way. But we don't start there. We start with God graciously reaching towards you in all grace. Unmerited favor. That's how it starts. Not about your activity. Your activity follows naturally after that. That's important to say as well. Okay? Now, I want to talk to you just a little bit about why I think Paul also wrote this letter. I think Paul is very concerned in, through the direction of the Holy Spirit that something in Ephesus, like any place, is going to happen 
unless we put down and say straight how God operates in human history and then what the responsibility of humans is in response. I need to write it all in yet in a letter. It's not a very long letter. Because what was he concerned about in Ephesus? Well, look, there's a few people there. And then you have these monstrosities and these, these colonnades and these, I mean, it's, a hard, it's so hard to imagine. Sometimes, I'll be honest with you. Sometimes I get really frustrated in the valley. I do. I, I'm driving down 111 and, you know, another club's coming in and another this and, you know, billions of dollars here represented by various people of power and, and then I think just about the little old church and a little old preaching the message and we got a few songs and, you know, preach and raise our hands and how is that exciting relative to, maybe if you're off in podunk nowhere, you know, out in some country that has, and I won't name any places, Odessa, Texas, but what I'm saying is somewhere out in the middle where there's not a whole lot to do, and you're like, mate, church might be yeah, one of the great things that you want to go to, right? And because it's, well, there's a nice, beautiful church there, but here relative to the rest of the valley, there's just always something going on that seems so so now, so hip, so relevant, so, so, oh, well, the Kardashians just bought a house here. So you get the point. You see what I'm saying? It's hard to grab people's attention. And sometimes I think that. How are we ever going to, how are we ever going to get people's attention? And yet we have the luxury of 2,000 years. And again, where's the Roman Empire? <laughs> where's the Roman Empire? Where's the great Spanish Armada? Where's the, and yet, God faithfully, step by step, Israel's become a nation again, just as God promised it would be. The nation has gone to the ends of the earth. The, na- the, the Bibles have been translated into virtually every single language, thousands and thousands and thousands of languages. Missionaries are in every place on the face of the planet, just as Jesus said would happen. And I just have to take stock of that sometimes when I'm in a valley that seems to marginalize something and now even demonize followers of Jesus. It's okay. Even if there's a little persecution, in the end, the light will shine. The light will shine. So I think about that syncretism. That's what, it's, it's what that is, a, a mixing, a blending. Uh, and Paul was concerned about that that somehow they would take the message of Jesus and then begin to slightly twist it and marry it with something else that they had wanted, uh, something they had desired. The very name Ephesus, again, means desirable. Now, are we part of that? Yes, that creeps into the church today. This is not unique to Ephesus. That's why this letter is going to be as relevant to us today as it was to them 2,000 years ago. I think uh, about this new commercial. And again, this is not a political statement. Please don't make it so. It's not a political statement. But I know some of you feel very passionately one way or the other about this. But this whole Colin Kaepernick, if you don't know about this, he's, he's the young man that was playing for the 49ers that felt like to make a stand. And again, we have many African-American brothers and sisters here, and they probably are maybe in a very different view of this. And I, and I love having dialogue. So please don't make this a, a country club white people kind of response here. Please don't do that. I'm, not, I'm making a statement on that. I'm making a statement on something more broadly about what's going on in this situation. But Colin Kaepernick felt, felt like, hey, you know, I need to make a statement for for our people. And then some of you, and, I, and my own father-in-law is here who served three tours in Vietnam, and some of you have sacrificed greatly to serve your country, and you're deeply, deeply hurt by this. I don't want to go down that road. Please, are you with me? Let's not go down that road for a minute. But what he said in a recent commercial, Nike decided to put a recent commercial with Colin Kaepernick in it, and it's now it's airing. And and I can see in this a lot of syncretism. And let me explain why. Let me just quote He says, at the end of this Nike commercial, he says, just believe in something, even if it means sacrificing everything. Don't ask if your dreams are crazy. Ask if they are crazy enough. Now, let me, I'm going to give you one example of what I would consider syncretism and the church, a biblical representation of the true gospel narrative, okay, and how this happens right in our culture today. 
So what happens is it's very easy. If you use some of that language, let's take that. Just be, Well, believe, that's a big important word, right? Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Believe is important and sacrifice, you know, unless a man picks up his cross and follows me, he doesn't have any part of me. So sacrifice, that's a big one. And Romans 12, 1, we just looked at it. Should become a living sacrifice. So the language are like, oh, well, this, this I can use. Just believe in something, even if and it, it, it needs to sacrifice everything. And, and then dreams, you know, the Bible's full of the dreams, isn't it? Just dreams, dreams. Don't ask if your dreams are crazy. Ask if they are crazy. Enough. Well, that could be applied in some ways. I mean, I, I think Paul could have had dreams. And then, but are they crazy? That's crazy. I'm going this way, and then I have a dream, and now go to Macedonia. And the, the, No, we don't know anybody up there. Well, it's crazy enough. Let's go. So you can begin to believe it. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you what happens with the gospel is that we use this to help us get our own dreams. There's a syncretism here. In other words, I have a business, or I have a this, or I have a that, or I want to do this, or I want to get this amount of money. And we come to the Bible, and we don't even realize we're doing it. And then we begin to find verses that help us and give us strong sense that God's going to help us get everything we ever dreamed for. Now let me ask you a question. Did Paul get everything he ever dreamed for? He wasn't dreaming for this. And I promise you he wasn't dreaming for getting beat and thrown outside the city for dead. And I promise you he wasn't. Now, I will tell you also, but simultaneous to saying that, he had to redream, didn't he? I've called this in the past, re- get a revisioning, revisioning. I had a vision for my life, and then something happened on that road to Damascus, and God threw me off, and now he's beginning to give me new dreams, but they're birthed in him, they're not birthed in me. See, I think Paul was very concerned about Ephesus. This was a place that people desired to come to, and clearly they wanted their dreams to be fulfilled, didn't they? Who doesn't want their dreams fulfilled? Well, looking back now, I had all kinds of dreams. I had many, many dreams, and I thought when I first came to Christ that I saw I'd I'd read these things, ask anything you will, and he'll give it to you and all this, and I'm like, man, I like this book. Because this book's going to help me get me everything I dream for. Now I look back and I thank the Lord in his sovereignty and in his love that he gave me very little of what I had originally dreamed for and now is giving new dreams birthed in the Holy Spirit. And I'm not just trying to sync my early dreams with his promises and to get frustrated somewhere along the way because, well, God's not doing what he said he would do. See, I think Paul was concerned that that was going to happen in a multitude of ways in Ephesus. So what I'd like to do here real quickly is I want to go to Acts chapter 9, and then we're going to wind this down this morning with this. Acts chapter 9, you know, the very first verse of uh, the Ephesians is Ephesians 1, and it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. I'm not even going to read the whole verse. I told you we're going to get through the first verse. We're not. We're going to get through half of the first verse of the first chapter of Ephesians this morning. But it's too packed. You can't, you cannot get over this. You got to go deeper. You got to dive deeper. Let me read that again. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. What does that mean? He's an apostle by the will. Was it his will to be an apostle? He was killing these people called away. He was killing these early Jews who were still saying that somehow they had seen a resurrected Jesus and that it filled all this and now they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were speaking in new tongues. Miracles were happening. It was a great threat to his dream of being a religious leader in Jerusalem, a huge threat. It's not any different than the same kind of threat he would pose some several decades later when he went to the church at Ephesus and he stood to be a, an exact person that was going to come against their livelihoods and their dreams, you know, and that's what we had seen last week. Those guys were making statues and this and that, and these people are messing up our whole economic model here. They're a great threat to Ephesus. Well, the, the Christians called away when Paul was in the process. They were a great threat as well. So in Acts chapter 9, and we'll close with this, I want to look briefly at Paul's conversion because it's going to help us answer some of the question, 
Was it Paul's will? Was it God's will? Well, yeah, and Paul, see, Paul's such a, a stark picture of being against, and then clearly, was it his will? No way. The question is now, what we'll try to answer over the next few weeks, well, did Paul have a choice? Was Paul predestined for this? Was it irresistible grace, or could he have resisted the grace? Did Paul, did Paul, was Paul crying out to God to understand truth, or was he already pretty settled that he, he understood everything? Those are some of the questions we're going to get into. Call your neighbors. <laughs> the conversion of Saul. You ready? Acts chapter 9, we'll close down with this. But I want to read through the story and then just make a couple of comments. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. How'd you like that to be said about you? Are you a person that breathes threats still to this day against the church? And you feel absolutely, completely, and utterly supported in your views. All those Christians, all those right-wing fanatics, all those crazies, all those people, you know, blah, 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 those narrow-minded, bigoted, homophobic, on down there, just down the list of things that you, you may have been accused of, or maybe you're here or on YouTube or something, and you say, yeah, that's exactly right, preach it, brother. That's how I feel. Well, that's where he was. And he went to the high priest and he asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way. See, they weren't called Christians yet. They were just called the way. It was a sect. At this point, it's a sect of Judaism for all intents and purposes. Okay? Both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He is not on our team. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting, not the way, why are you persecuting me? And by the way, there's nothing in the Bible that says he fell off his horse. Some speculate he might have been on a horse and he fell because he went to the ground, but it never says he was on a horse. Why I bring that up, I have no idea, but I just <laughs> find that interesting. And it says, and he said, who are you, Lord? He knew this was a powerful entity, whoever this was. And he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jen. No, he says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. And the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but they couldn't see anybody. And Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now, let me ask you another question. Would, would Paul give his testimony like this? You know, I was really seeking the Lord, and uh, then I just finally found it. I was able to get through philosophically, and I read all these books, and I finally came, I became compelled, intellectually compelled that, that Jesus was the Messiah, and then it took me another five years to try to assimilate. No, 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 no. How much action did Paul have in the saving process? Did he make a choice, or was a choice made for him in some ways? Now, before you're part of, now look, if you've, got a, if you've got a Southern Baptist background, Methodist background, Wesleyan Methodist background, if you've got a you know, some of that, you go, wait a minute, now he's talking about absolute, we don't have a decision in this. Well, you're going to have to come for the next few weeks. We're going to try to make this thing merge. And I'm going to give you how I think about it. So says, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight. Okay, now th I find that cool. Today in Latin, that's called a via recta. And it's still there. And the Romans had come in and actually enlarged this. When the Romans kind of took over the, their world position, they, had, they enlarged the street called Straight. Is this orthodox? So much that even the streets call Straight. Ortho Street. He says, And inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. Now, this is part number two of this. Paul, does he have a choice? Well, you can, yeah, well, I guess he could have laid there blind after that encounter with the Lord. 
It was just he couldn't prove that in a science room. He couldn't put that up to experimental, you know, in the lab and get it repeated results over and over. It clearly was something that was subjective. Even the guys around him couldn't see and hear it all. Remember the story. Who's doing the saving here? And now he's going to send somebody into his life. And, of course, Ananias doesn't want to go either. But he's willing to give his body a living sacrifice. Who was sent into your life? Maybe it's somebody right here at this church. And by the way, you should want to become Ananias. That the Lord would look down and say, hey, look, you need to go talk to that guy this week. You need to go see her. I don't know what it is. It's in my heart. I had a, I told you, I've had this numerous times over the last couple of weeks. Just this prompting to people who didn't know Jesus, call them, send them an email. And people I didn't know, like I'd met for a few minutes, send them a book. And then kind of, well, you know, they, they wouldn't read that book anyway, blah, 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 blah. I mean, and then I go, no, I have that prompting in my spirit. Go to Amazon, order the book, get the book, find the persons, somehow track them down because they said something about this, whether it's on an airplane or this or that. And I've had all these encounters over the last, even the last couple of weeks. And I'm sending this stuff out. Do a thank you letter for this guy that you met. Do, do, do this, do this, do this. Look, do you want to be that Ananias? But if you, if you know Jesus, trust me, you've had Ananias sit into your life. I guarantee you. But Ananias says, Lord, I've heard uh, from many about this man. How much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. Don't we have the same thing? My neighbor, they don't like Christianity. They don't like religion. They've already told me that. Oh, okay. And then the Lord says, oh, okay. I guess you're right, Ananias. I didn't think about that. Oh, you must be right. Forgive me for asking. The Lord doesn't say that. Otherwise, he wouldn't be asking you to do what he may be asking you to do right now. He says, and here, here's the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a what? Chosen instrument of mine. Based on Paul's goodness. See, it's one of the things I hope you picked up in the David series. Based on David's goodness. Based on Paul's goodness, if you think here and you think, well, I'm not good enough to come to Jesus or I, 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 my life is too messed up. If you knew what was going on in my life, you, boy, they wouldn't even let me in this. I have people say that all the time. I invite them to church. Lightning will strike if I come. I hear that all the time. And God says, no, they're a chosen instrument of mine. You just do what I'm asking you to do. You don't have to understand everything. Just do what I'm prompting you to do. Go invite your neighbor. If, I, if God puts that on your heart, go invite them. Bring, take them to a rooted group. Take them to a Bible study. Take them to anything. Bring them to church. Go over to their house. Take them a meal. Do, do, just act. He says, no, he's a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. Do You do know he went before Festus and Felix and Agrippa and Oh, all this played out. All this was prophetically accurate. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. That's not part of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, is it? So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying hands on him, he says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight. And he must have been trembling because if he got his sight back, Ananias had to recognize there's at least a chance that I may be going to jail bound to Jerusalem. Do you, you do, don't, don't overlook this in your own experience. If God calls you to do something and you're afraid to do it, Lord, give me the spirit of Ananias. I need it right now. If you're calling me to do this, all right, Lord, I'm going to do it. Maybe I'm bound and taken to Jerusalem. Maybe I lose my job. Maybe I lose my place in the social ladder at my, at my place. Or maybe I, maybe I lose a friend. Maybe just do it. Get the spirit of Ananias. And he took food and he was strengthened. He regained his sight. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues. And Ananias went, whew! 
He's talking about Jesus. He's on our side now. He's the Son of God, and all those hearing him continued to be amazed, and they were saying, Is this not he who is in Jerusalem, destroyed those who called on his name, and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jewish people who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Now, I love this story. There's so much in this. Chosen instrument. Can I just tell you, if Jesus has called you, you're also a chosen instrument. He doesn't call people and then not choose them to be an instrument of some kind. Let me say that again. If Jesus has called you, he doesn't call you just to believe and go back to your life. He calls you for a purpose. And if we became a church full of people that were chosen instruments in their own eyes, not just in mine or pastoral staff or so. No, if you can get this in your eyes, you, your whole life will change because you'll see, well, I'm here for a purpose. And you'll begin to get meaning in your life. Not just a vacation or a new car or a new house or a new something. No, you will get such deep meaning in your life. You can't wait to get up in the morning. So next week, we are, God willing, going to launch into this difficult, difficult idea of what is our task and do we bring anything to the table versus what is God's task in saving us. Are we predestined? Do you believe in predestination? People ask me that. Do you believe in predestination? Of course I do. It's in the Bible. But interpreting that is sometimes quite complex. And we are finite beings. Now, I will also say, if you think I'm going to unpack this mystery and that I'm the one who has been able to do this, even though all the church over the last 2,000 years never does it to the satisfaction of everybody, then you're wrong. I'm not that smart. But I can give you some deep things to think about over the next few weeks, and I think it will help you, and I think it will massively, massively help you at the moment that you need it. If you struggle this week, You are a follower of Jesus. You have been baptized. You have embraced Jesus as your Messiah. But boy, you had a lousy week. Your behavior did not reflect the glory of the King of Kings. Your attitudes didn't. Your time spent didn't. Boy, you're glad that we don't all everybody have a picture of exactly how you spent your whole week and all the attitudes that you had. If that's you, can I just tell you? You were called. You're still called. You're still loved. And that's why I love predestination. And we'll get more into that next week. We're going to close with this worship song. Um, I just love this song. I, I love them all. Did you like that second song? I actually saw some of you tapping your toe. It was amazing. I, was a, I said they are, and I saw a couple of people come. <laughs> this song is so good. Listen to the words. Let's worship Jesus, and then I'll close this in prayer.